Anybody thankful to be a part of an apostolic church? Hello. Everybody thankful to be a part of an apostolic church? neighbor and tell them I'm fired up about it. Got to where I ask my kids that all the time. Who's fired up? We don't even know what we're fired up about. Both of them, Eliana, I am daddy. Erica's not going to be left out. Me too, daddy. What are y'all fired up about? I don't know. We just fired up. What's that mean? I don't know, but I'm fired up. I'm fired up about being part of an apostolic church. I know what that means. I've often wondered about those signs out in front of churches that say, when you've tried it. And we even had a song we used to sing in the church all the time about when you've tried everything and everything has failed, try Jesus. And we sang it in like, I don't know, three, four times. And it was depressing. When you've tried everything and everything has failed, try Jesus. When you've tried everything and everything has failed, try Jesus. When you've tried everything, sing it with me, and everything has failed, try Jesus. He'll go with you. And I've often wondered, is that really how we feel about him? Every time I see that on a sign out in front of a church, I just want to hook a log chain to that sign and snatch it with my truck right out of the ground and drag it down the highway. Well, you sing some crazy stuff. Have a little talk. Ain't have no little talk with Jesus. If we talk and we talk about something big, Standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus. I think we've sang some of that stuff so long till we've decided to live in the shadows. We're afraid to come on out and get in the light. I think we've, we've sung about a little talk with Jesus to the point that's all we spend time with. Cut out about five minutes out of my day and have a little talk with Jesus. And if you're not careful, that little talk with Jesus will be all about what you need, don't need, want, and don't want. But them old folks used to talk. uh, When I was a kid in the church, there was an expression that was used all the time. And when you were going through stuff, and of course we have mastered counseling. Because we've decided to quit pastoring. I'll shout for my own sake. We've decided to counsel people because we don't pastor them anymore. 
you pastor people with a word from God. Oh, I'm not saying we don't need a little extra help every now and then. But I'm talking about these chronic people who need to be counseled forever sneeze and cough. There used to be an expression in the church that we heard all the time. Son, you need to go pray through. I'm struggling. I've got an addiction. <laughs> no, what you have, and now we call it we have an addiction. Used to be you had a lack of a prayer life. Oh, I'm just struggling. No, you're not. You're surrendering. Struggle indicates there's a battle and a fight going on. <clears throat> Some of us have lost our edge. We're such a peaceful generation now. I'm looking to pick a fight. I'm just going to tell you right now. I came, <laughs> I came in here tonight hoping to pick a fight with some devil somewhere. I, I remember when I was a kid that people got the devil cast out of them every service. And, and it wasn't necessarily that people came for prayer. Now I'm not talking about you, brethren, but it used to, used to, you didn't come to, yeah. <laughs> Brother Trauma said, not this time. Used to, people didn't come to the preachers for prayer. Used to, people didn't have to ask the person in the pew beside them, will you pray for me? I, I need deliverance. Used to, the saints of God had such an attitude, we were looking for somebody to lay hands on. Well, I don't want to offend nobody. Okay, then don't leave them bound. I don't want to hurt their feelings. Well, then don't let them think you don't love them by not praying for them. Get your happy self up off of that pew and go find somebody to pray with. I promise you, when there's four or five hundred people gathered up in here, there's somebody in the joint that needs prayer. And I've, I've just decided in the last few months, I, I, I may be out there on a the little battlefield all by myself, but I, I've just made my mind up. I, I don't want to serve God and be bored doing it. And I think that's what's happened to a lot of us. Boredom has crept in. And, and we've done away with some statements like an idle mind is a devil's workshop. And it really is. And so I've made a commitment to the Lord that I am not going to let myself get bored in the kingdom. Uh, if he don't have something for me to do, I'm going to go find something to do. I'm going to be looking for somebody to preach to. I'm going to be looking for somebody to pray for. I want to lay hands on somebody and see them delivered. I want to see somebody come out of bondage and into freedom. I want to see somebody come out of darkness and into the light. The enemy has conditioned our minds. And by doing that, he's affected our expectations. If you're about to get in a fight, you expect to get hit. You have certain expectations. And I've got a few. You can seat yourself. I've got a few expectations. Give honor to Bishop and Mother tonight. Thank the Lord for them. <clears throat> Pastor and Sister Wright. Pastor and Sister Wright. 
Give honor to all of them. Thank God for godly leadership. Thank God for somebody that knows where we're going. Well, I just don't like to blindly trust people. Then don't get on another bus, train, or plane. It's amazing how much of our life we'll turn over to complete strangers. I give honor to my family. Thank God for my wife and Eliana and Erica. Love them very, very much. I've, um, I've had the Holy Ghost since I was, best I can remember, it was like nine years old. Um, I think I was still a devil at eight, but I, I think I got the Holy Ghost at nine. I still acted like a devil after that, but. Um, and, and then all of that time, then from now back, I think it's been about, how old am I? It's been over, it's been about 25 years of ministry involvement. And um, I have not yet seen it all, but I have seen a few things. And um, I haven't seen all I want to see. I've seen the dead raised three times. Pretty fired up about that. But. I want to see that happen three more times. And matter of fact, not praying any of you die, but I wouldn't mind seeing him raise the dead tonight. Anybody feeling like you might cross over? (laughs) If you are, get up here on the front row where we don't have to find you, and when you pass over, we'll just bring you back. I'm looking for something to happen that will set the stage for the supernatural. I am, uh, I am convinced that we try to organize our life and structure our lives, give honor to these men of God. Uh, when I said leadership, I included them. I think we have structured and organized our lives in such a way that we don't have controversy and conflict. And uh, I know it's going to seem like a broke record for a few minutes, but just bear with me. Uh, We, we are, we're trying to automate industry. We're, we're trying to simplify the process of manufacturing. We're trying to uh, find ways to cut corners and save money. And so we're building machines that can replace humans and uh, outsourcing jobs to technology and the like. And we're finding ways to automate stuff where used to it took 13 people to oversee a certain plant. Now it takes two to watch a bank of computer monitors, and I get all of it. I I really do. And if I owned a company, I would find a way to cut my cost and my overhead and make the most money I could at what I was doing. I I get that. I understand it. I don't have a problem with that. But that mindset has crept into the church. And we're trying to find ways, whether we want to acknowledge this or not. And when I'm talking to you, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about us as a church. I'm talking about uh, I'm not talking to you from a Bible college perspective. I'm not talking to you about what somebody told me. I'm not talking to you about what I read in somebody's book because I quit reading books by other people. I don't, I don't do a lot of reading anymore at all. I'm talking to you about what I have watched happen in the church since I was a boy. I, I'm talking to you about what I have seen take place in the kingdom uh, since I was just a little child. And I remember as a kid that there was hardly a service that went by that um, 
Um, now, this is not a chastising service, so for those of you that are concerned about that, that's not where I'm headed. Just bear with me a minute. I can feel y'all drawing up on me. But I remember when I was a kid, and, and, and if, if anybody's being chastised, I am. Uh, I've been convicted lately, Brother Spriggs. I've been, I'm, I'm talking about the Lord has raked my hide over the coals about my own conduct. Uh, I, I would have, I would have vowed to you a hundred vows that I was apostolic six months ago. I would have told you that there was not one area of my life that I was not pursuing apostolic things in at the highest level I could pursue them. But when God begins to shine the light of truth on you and you're willing to be honest about what He's revealing, there are things that you have to be willing to accept about yourself. And so I've, I've come face to face with some ugly truths. I, I've come face to face with the fact that, uh, it, 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 to, to uh, as much as Bishop has tried and has wore me out and, and whatnot, I, he asked me a question the other night on the phone at about, oh, we talked till 1.30 that night, and at about 11.45, he asked a question. And when he asked that question, I just plugged my phone in because I knew we were going to be there yet a little while longer. My battery was getting low. But when he asked the question, I realized right that moment, I didn't need him to say another word. He didn't have to ask another question. He didn't have to speak another syllable. When he asked that question, I'm telling you, conviction swarmed over me and began to wear me out because I did not believe, I would not have believed that was the case before he asked a question. He didn't make a statement. He didn't say, I see this or thus saith the Lord. He asked an honest question with no hidden agenda or motive. And he said, the Lord told me to ask you this. And when he did, the light of truth shone about me. And I had to be real honest about what I saw about myself. And so I, I, at 1.35, when we got off the phone, I, I began to repent. I sat up for quite a while longer after that phone call repenting to God because I realized there were some areas in my life I'd been kind of holding back on. And uh, there were things, it wasn't, wasn't things that I was doing, it was what I was not doing. And you, you have to just accept this because here at Antioch, y'all don't understand this, but Throughout the constituency of the apostolic ranks, apostolic ministry has been marginalized. Uh, there has been a diminishment on, on us. We, we are, you can, there used to be a day, I said it when I first started tonight, there used to be a day, Brother Whaley, when uh, you, you could talk to preachers on Monday morning and they'd ask you how the services went on the weekend. Y'all remember this and we could tell them, well, we cast the devil out of 13 people last night. My God, that's awesome. But now you can talk to some of your preacher friends and they'll say, hey, uh, how did services go this weekend? And if you tell them, well, we had somebody there that was uh, needing deliverance. We don't even use terminology like we used to. Used to, we just cast the devil out of somebody. But now we, we worrying about, well, are they really possessed and are they really this? What difference does it make? But those kinds of questions have marginalized us. And so now if you tell somebody, just flat out, straight up, tell them. Yeah, service was awesome last night. Three angels manifested themselves. God healed 16 people. We cast the devil out of two more. They will look at you and say, really? 
Y'all cast the devil out of somebody? Am I telling the truth? They will look at you like you are crazy. Do y'all really cast the devil out of people? That, I mean, I've heard about that. And I'm thinking, are you crazy? You say you're an apostolic. You say that you believe what's in the book. And you're in the ministry. You're in the church. And you're, you not only have, not only have you not seen it happen, you seem to find it hard to believe that I'm telling you it happened. And so the trend has been among us that if you believe those things, if you really are an apostolic, it's an anomaly. You're, 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 people come to see it just to see it. It's, it's a show. It's entertainment. Oh, if y'all really want to see something, y'all go to so-and-so's church. If you're going to go to that church, you, and, and they'll make statements like, if you're going to preach for so-and-so, you better have your A-game on. Well, that used to be the case in all of our churches. But we've gotten accustomed to having services where it's, well, it's an off night. Off night used to be the one night that we took out of revival after about eight weeks so everybody could do laundry. We're having an off night. But now off night means it's okay to come to church and not have a move of God tonight. I'm not talking about people, but I'm addressing a spirit that's trying its best to wear the apostolic church out. And I told you I intend to pick a fight with the devil tonight before this is all over. I'm going to state my claim one more time so the enemy knows exactly where I stand on the issue. You can sit there and look at me like a mule looking at a gate if you want to. That's not my problem. I want the devil to know before I leave here what side of the street I'm on. I am not going to be marginalized as a man of God or a child of God. Not one more minute of my life. Done with that. I've kind of come to the conclusion, Brother Bound, that when I tell somebody we cast the devil out of an individual and they look at me and say something ignorant like, really? I'm going to start making fun of them. This ain't abnormal. I told you I've seen God raise the dead three times in my ministry. I intend to see it three more times and then three more times. And I am not going to let you be comfortable in my presence not being an apostolic when you say you are one. You want to be numb to what God's doing? That's fine. But if somebody is going to be uncomfortable, it ain't going to be me. I, I've had all this I, pitiful Pentecostal performance. I won't. I'm not doing it no more either. I have no intentions of ever preaching another time trying to pacify people. Not going to do it. I can't see God raise the dead doing that. I can't see God fill anybody with the Holy Ghost trying to impress people. I can't see apostolic ministry take place trying to pacify you. And there's something in me that's just finally reached a point. I'm, I'm tired of hearing all of these. Oh, Jesus, be a fence around my mouth in Jesus' name. Oh. 
I, I've decided I, I, every now and then I cut loose on Twitter with some stuff and say things and I'll get calls from preachers. Well, what's, what's got you stirred up? My response has become people like you. I'm tired of lying about it. Yes, I'm stirred up. Yes, I'm concerned. Matter of fact, I'm just mad. I am mad at the fact that I have let the adversary rock me to sleep too many church services. I am mad at the fact that I have let the adversary marginalize who I am in the kingdom too many days. And if you want to know why I'm stirred up, I'm stirred up because of you. I told a guy that. So-and-so called me and wanted to know what had you stirred up. I said, he does. Really? Yes. Because he says he believes the same thing I say I believe. Yet we act completely opposite of one another. My Angelo nailed it. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. That's as much, you can put thus saith the Lord on that, you'd have a word from God, baby, I'm telling you. She nailed that. Come up in the house of God, oh, I believe in all this stuff, and then we don't act like we believe it. I'm not talking about in church, I'm talking about outside of here. I'm tired of carnal preachers being comfortable around me. I'm tired of carnal people being comfortable around me. I'm tired of non-spiritual people feeling comfortable around me. If you're comfortable around me and you don't have a spiritual bone in your body, that means that I don't either. I told you I ain't mad at y'all. I am sick of the devil and I'm doing my very best to get him to show up in my hotel room tonight. I'm tired of worrying about whether I'm going to have some sort of demonic confrontation in my hotel room. If I haven't had a face-to-face with the devil in every city that I go to and the prince of that city hadn't had to come to my room and try to keep me up, then I'm not doing something right with what God gave me and I'm not being who it is I'm supposed to be. I remember nights that I've laid in hotel rooms, Brother Tromlin, here growling, walking up and down the hall. Growling. What are you talking about, Brother? Some of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I remember being in evangelist quarters, which I hope to God that Antioch never builds one in the church. I can't stay in them. No, I don't need to be up here at no evangelist quarters. <clears throat> but I remember... Being in some of them and watching demonic spirits manifest themselves because the church was so full of devils, there was nothing there to keep them out. I sat in an evangelist quarters in Texas one night and watched a troll come to my door at the, at the church in the evangelist quarters come. And I saw his little feet under the door and he stood there. I got up and snatched the door open and he ran down the hall and turned around and pointed at me. He's about that tall, looked like a little troll. But it's been about 10 or 12 years since I've seen that. And I've wondered what's wrong. And the reality of it is, I'm what's wrong. I'm no threat to the adversary if he don't have to show up and try to derail what God sent me there to do. I'm not doing my job. I don't want to see a devil. 
You probably won't. I'm tired of seeing angels in buildings and being intimidated to tell people I see an angel standing right over there. Well, you know, you don't want to sound like a whack job. Yes, I do. They crucified Jesus because he didn't sound like everybody else. They crucified Jesus because he claimed to be what they thought he didn't have a right to be. They crucified Jesus because he wouldn't dumb his message down and be like everybody else in town. They pursued Paul and the rest of the disciples because they made a decision. I am going to preach something that requires an apostolic manifestation of God's spirit to confirm what I've preached. And I just got to say it, preachers, if, 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 if God don't need to confirm what we preach, we, we need to change our message. I don't know when it became midweek Bible study. I don't know. But when I was a kid, I never heard church on Wednesdays called that. Matter of fact, when I was a kid, we had church on Sunday morning. Well, we started on Sunday morning. We finished sometime early afternoon. And then we had church Sunday night. And hopefully we got done before Monday morning. And, and, and I remember the day that my mother didn't take us three kids home as long as there was somebody in that altar praying. We stayed in that building and we waited until that ministry was over with. Because mama didn't want to miss one thing that Jesus was going to do in that church service. I remember laying on the pew, flopping around on the pew, mad at mom. Why can't we go? Everybody else is going. All of my friends are getting to go home. I want to go home. I'm hungry. I'm sleepy, whatever. It never deterred my mother. She said, I'm going to raise you, but I'm not going to raise you like everybody else may raise their kids. I'm going to raise you in the house of God and in the presence of God. And if that means we got to stay till 2 p.m. on Sunday, we'll be here at 2 p.m. I remember all of that. I remember my mother raising three children. My brother just turned 50 yesterday or day before. I just turned 48. My sister will be 47 in October. So we were stair-stepped. My mother never griped. She never complained. She never said, I don't have time. She never said, it's too hard. Somewhere along the way, my mom got this revelation that it was going to be a lot harder to let her kids go to hell without a fighting chance than to give them a fighting chance in the house of God. My, my brother ain't living the way he ought to, and my sister ain't living the way he ought to, she ought to, but you can't lay their life at my mama's feet and say, you didn't do your part. My mama did her part, and when it's all said and done, I said it this morning, I'm going to say it again. I've got a promise. Mama's got a promise about my brother and a promise about my sister. And if they go the long way around, that's between them and God, baby. I don't care if they go the long way or not. I've got a word that they're coming home. And I'm tired of letting my circumstances mandate how I view my promises from God. I'm tired of looking at my life based on what I'm going through instead of based on what I'm trying to get to. But the church has changed. I've said this in your hearing before and I 
can't get away. I got to say it again. The church globally has changed because we have changed. It's not just what's happening on our pulpits, on our platforms and in our pulpits either. Don't, don't sit there and point at us and say, well, it's you preachers. You're not preaching the stuff that makes me hungry. My mama didn't get preached to the way I've been preached to, but my mama seemed to have had a hunger that still in her late 70s supersedes my own hunger. Mama wasn't waiting on somebody else to make her hungry for the things of God, and she's still not waiting on somebody else to do it. Any day you walk in my mother's house, there's an open Bible sitting beside her chair, and it ain't on the same page day after day, which means she's reading it day by day by day. She reads it through every year. Why? because she's hungry for more of God and she's not going to let everybody else mandate to her what she can have from him. That's the way I was raised. I don't know if mama's watching or not, but I, I, ought to, I need to apologize to my mother because she raised me to make sure my kids were in the prayer room. Because she raised us in the prayer room. We didn't grow up believing church started at 6 on Sunday night. Church started at least 5.30. But I don't remember a day in my life, Brother Barr, going to church less than an hour before service started. And we grew up in the prayer room. My mother prayed. You hear me? My mama prayed her face off in that prayer room. And that's where I learned to pray. But I've watched myself. And just because I travel all the time. And just because I'm in strange places all the time. Does not give me the right to negate what my mother put in me. Paul told Timothy. Don't you forget what your mama and your grandmama put in you boy. They put some stuff in you that will get you through. And carry you over. And you better not forget it. But I I forgot some of the stuff my mama put in me. I have no problem admitting that to you. I can make all the excuses in the want to in the world that I want to about not getting my kids early to church because I'm in a different city all the time. But if my kids are with me, I have a responsibility to spend time praying with them. Whether I can get in that church's prayer room or I've got to do it in my hotel room. The point was, mama prayed in front of us. And if I don't do it, I have failed. And if I marginalize my pursuit of God in front of my babies, when they get older, they're going to marginalize it too. My hunger for God is not just based on what I've seen him do in my ministry alone. But my hunger for God and what's stirring me right now is going all the way back, Sister Owens, to what my mother put in me. She didn't even know what it meant to truly be apostolic. Nobody talked about it like we do now. But she was hungry for God. And because of that, something was put in me. But I've let, I've let that Rhythmic flow of church and religion rocked me to sleep. And I was deceived. I, I got to a point at somewhere, I don't even know where and when and how it happened, but somehow or another, I got to the place that I really, I guess I thought what I thought mattered. That my opinion mattered to God. That what I felt about something and how I felt something should go, 
that, that God forbid that we, we got to the place that I thought I knew what was long enough for a church service and what was too long for one. When I was growing up, there was no question about how long do we preach. Preachers didn't ask the pastor, what time are we getting out? The man of God just gave the other man of God the mic and he took off. And he followed God until we had a move of the Holy Ghost. I was in a church not long ago and I told him, I said, I'll tell you what. I can tell some of you are checked out and ready to go home. But I am going to preach until we have a move of God in this church. If you stay for it, that's your business. If you get up and leave, that's between you and God too. I personally do not care. We went ahead and had to move God. But I remember growing up that way. I remember when it wasn't all that impressive to be able to preach some eloquent deal and impress everybody with how much you knew. I remember when preachers didn't know all the big words they know now. I remember when men of God sounded like they were just country people walked straight up out of a cornfield somewhere. They couldn't hardly carry a tune in a bucket when they tried to sing and plucked a little old six-string guitar. But the stories we tell about our heritage do not come from my generation. The stories we tell about what we've seen God do, we haven't seen God do. We're telling what somebody else said they saw God do. And we can come up with new ways to do church all we want to. We can come up with programs and platitudes and whatever thing you want to come up with. But at the end of the day, 7 billion people are not interested in another religious church. They're interested in somebody who knows how to pray a prayer that will bring them out of the bondage they've been living in. I remember when preachers preached conviction literally so hard. And you've heard the stories. But I remember when they preached it so hard that the knuckles would turn white. It didn't matter what color you were. Your knuckles would turn white gripping the back of that pew because of conviction. And you knew you needed to go. And there was a spiritual struggle going on the whole time. Get to that altar. Don't you go. Get to that altar. Don't you go. And those old preachers would preach. Oh, my God, they would preach. A conviction reigned in the church. Nobody argued about is this necessary or is that necessary. What everybody agreed on was hell's coming and I don't want to go. There was a common thread in some of those old time preachers. And there were a couple of things that they always seemed to preach about every time they preached. One was the rapture and two was hell. It didn't matter if they was preaching Genesis 1-1 or Revelation 21 and 8. It made no difference what verse they were preaching from. Somewhere in the meeting that night or that morning, they were going to remind you, Jesus is coming, and if you have not been baptized in that name and filled with His Spirit, you are going to be lost and go to hell. And then they proceeded to tell us, what was going to be in hell waiting on us. It wasn't enough to just say you're going to go to hell. Because we can get so carnal, we can say, well, what's wrong with that? But when you, 
Oh, nobody does it. Yeah. Yeah, we do that. When, when conviction moves through here and even the saints of God can sit in their pew. <laughs> well, I'm sanctified and Holy Ghost filled. Well, then what would be wrong with going to the altar? Oh, I've been saved. Thirty-five years. Well, you know what? You can own a car 35 years, but you need to wash it once in a while and clean it out. People don't clean the vehicle, don't go to the altar very often either. I guess I've just had it with being marginalized. I'm just sick of it. But I'm sick of thinking that everybody else is marginalizing me. I don't care if you don't like me. I'm sure of a couple of things. There's a God and ain't nobody in here Him. So if you like me or you don't like me, what difference does that make to me? But I'm shocked and and ashamed to have to admit to you that I was imprisoned by that for a while. And I thought I was out of it until our bishop asked me that question at 11.45 p.m. And when he asked the question, I realized while I might have come away I yet had a ways to go. Now, I know y'all have already reached 100, but I'm still striving, trying to make it. I still live in this flesh. I'm tired of laying my inadequacies off on everybody else. As long as somebody else is the reason I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, I will never do what I'm supposed to do because the adversary will see to it brother Barr that there's always somebody there to offend me there's always somebody there that I'm trying to impress there's always somebody there that I want to be on their good side he'll make sure that there's always somebody there to prevent me from being what I'm called to be it's not you that can truly marginalize me it's me that marginalizes me. It was me at the age of 14 that had this leg ripped off from the knee down. It was me at the age of 14 that was underwater for nearly 30 minutes. It was me at the age of 14 that God prevented from drowning somehow or another. Nearly 25 minutes I stayed submerged in the Ouachita River. I don't know how God kept me alive, but somehow he managed to do it. It's my leg that they put 520 plus stitches in. It's my leg that had second degree gangrene. It's my leg that was crippled for months and months and months. It's me that's got the scars from my foot to my hip on both legs. It's me that was sitting in a boat when a car appeared from nowhere at the top of the boat landing and followed the friend that I was with down the boat ramp and backed in and picked me up. It was an angel that picked not you. You weren't there. 
You didn't see it. But it was me, the 14-year-old fat kid sitting in that boat that an angel got out of an old Monte Carlo, walked over and stepped in that boat that was about that deep in water and blood. Because we had ridden 14 miles down that river and me bleeding to death the whole time. I don't know how God kept blood in my body when my leg was leaking it all out. I don't know. My calf and all of this hanging by one little old shred of meat. Put it together, wrapped a blanket or towel around it, and held it there and blood just pouring out of it. I didn't know I had that much blood in me. You weren't there. This isn't somebody else's story. I saw that with my own eyes. I felt it when my leg was being torn off. It was me that sat in that chair that day at that boat ramp. And that angel got in. He walked down like a big, humongous man. He looked at us. He said to Brother Ronnie Ferguson, he said, what's the problem? Brother Ronnie was a man in our church, close to our family. He said, the boy's leg's been tore off. I've got to get him to the hospital before he bleeds to death. But I can't pick him up. I'm too weak. He's been trying to pick the boat up off me that whole time. He said, I can't pick him up anymore. I can't get him. It was me that was stranded in that river. And Ronnie Ferguson's reaching down with both of his hands trying to pull me up in that boat and me holding on like this. With I've got this hand up in the air and this arm up over the edge of the boat and saying, Ronnie, you've got to help me. He's saying, Scott, you've got to try to pull. And it was me that said, Ronnie, there's somebody in the boat with you. He had this arm and He said, no, Scott, there's nobody here in this boat with us. It's just me, you, and the Lord. I said, Brother Ronnie, somebody's in the boat with you because there are now two extra hands on my arm. And when I acknowledged it, it was me that the angel of the Lord plucked out of that river and sat in my seat and did it so fast that Brother Ronnie thought he had dropped me and I had slipped back into the Washita River. And he's leaning over the boat screaming my name. Scott, where are you? And I turned around and looked at him at the back of the boat and I said, Brother Ronnie, I'm all the way up here. I said, Brother Ronnie, I'm up here. He said, how did you get there? It was me that told him, I don't know, but I told you there was somebody in the boat with me. There's no way you can marginalize what happened to me in that river. I am the only person in the world who can marginalize what I saw, who can marginalize marginalize what I experienced, who can marginalize what I know. You don't have the power, nor the authority, nor the influence. And I have to admit, I have done it to myself. I stopped telling that story because when I would tell it, people would look at me like, what's wrong with you? That didn't really happen. You've made all that up. But come up after church and I'll pull my pants leg up and my sock down and show you the scar and prove to you what happened to me. You can't marginalize me. But I can. It was me that that angel picked up. Stepped over the edge of that boat. And while Brother Ronnie backed that boat up into the river and run it up on the trailer, that, that boat trailer <clears throat> on the truck, that man carried me to that truck and with this hand under my knees, he reached out, opened the truck door. It was me that he put in that front seat of that truck. It was me that he buckled in and this old man standing out there just smiling and nodding, never said a word. Got out of the car with him. 
There was not another human being on that, on that boat ramp and that landing, nor that state park, Sandy Beach Landing in Camden, Arkansas. It was just me, Ronnie Ferguson, and these two men. Brother Ronnie run that boat up, locked it down, jumped over in the bed of his truck, and the back window of the truck was open. He stuck his head in. He said, are you okay? I said, yes. That man buckled me up and had already shut the door. Ronnie looked in right here over my left shoulder. He said, are you okay? I said, yes, I'm fine. This man stepped back up to the door with Ronnie still sticking his head in the back window. This man reached up, patted me on this shoulder. He said, oh, by the way, I was supposed to tell you something and give you a message. Don't worry about your leg. I feel that same angel in here right now. He said, don't worry about that leg. I was sent to tell you that this whole day has been for a reason and a purpose. And maybe it was so that tonight in, 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 in Annapolis, Maryland, I would remember one more time. It was me in that boat. It was me in that river. It was me in that truck. I have done this to myself. He looked me in the face and he said, this, this day will serve you in the future. This day will be something that you'll draw strength from in the future. It's going to be all right. You're not going to lose your leg. And for 14 miles coming down that river, I was afraid they were going to have to cut it off. I didn't know that the boat motor had hit my leg under the water to the point. I knew it had hit it, but I didn't realize that it had fractured the bone in that leg. A hairline fracture. I had no idea that just a couple of hours from that boat ramp, a couple of hours later, the doctor was going to look at the surgery team and tell them, I need to just go ahead and amputate it from here down. I was unconscious, but I already had a word. I'm not going to lose my leg. It don't matter if you know what's going on or not. If you've got a word... When he said it, he patting me on the chest the whole time he's talking. Ronnie's sitting right there looking in the window. When he said it, his hand's still touching my chest. Sister Owens, I turned to look and see if Ronnie had heard it and that hand stopped tapping. Ronnie was looking and he nodded. I turned around and the young man 
And the old man and the Monte Carlo in less than two seconds had disappeared off of, off of that boat ramp. You don't have what it takes to marginalize me, but I have done it to myself because I forgot what God did. Oh, God, I'm not going to forget no more. I'm not going to another pulpit absent of mine of where God brought me from. I don't want to ever walk in another pulpit until I've had a stirring of my mind and a stirring up of my gifting and God reminding me, I am with you always. I didn't know until later, but one of the nurses, the surgical nurses that was in that operating room, when Dr. Fawn said, I ought to just go ahead and take his leg from the, right here at the top of the wound, because he probably needs some kind of cast or splint on that leg, but I can't do that and try to sew it up and save his leg. All that river water, they pulled a stick that had gone in the top of my ankle and nearly come out the bottom of my foot. They drilled a hole in the side of my ankle to get it out and to let pressure off and let fluids drain. They pulled 75 splinters out of my leg. And the doctor's looking at this mangled mess that he showed me and my mom and dad when they got to the hospital. And he told the team of, of, of nurses that were with him, I need to go ahead and amputate that leg. But even though I was unconscious, there was a word that had already gone before me into that ER. And it just so happened. That one of the nurses, <laughs> one of those nurses said, hold on a minute. And she looked at my chart and she said, Shelton, his dad is Doug Shelton. I grew up with his daddy. Don't cut that leg off. Give him a chance. Huh? Brother Shelton, it's not that big of a deal. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I don't know why. I don't know why he wanted to do it the way he did it. But today, I'm telling you, and I'm telling God, and I'm telling the enemy, I am done being marginalized. Oh, God, I'm going to stir those gifts up inside of me. I'm not going to forget what my mama and my grandmama put in me. I've not made my mind up for nothing. But if I do this, you're going to have to show up. I'm not committing to this for nothing. You confirmed to Paul. You confirmed what he preached to everybody that watched. You're going to have to do it for me and everybody in this room too. 
because we're done being marginalized. We're done letting religious traditionalism marginalize us. We're done letting our own flesh marginalize us. I'm tired of my disappointments marginalizing my identity. I'm tired of what's let me down dictating about what's trying to pick me up. Tired of seeing angels and being intimidated to tell you I see one behind you. The Lord smote me on the plane yesterday from Chicago here. I told Bishop not long ago what God had shown me about this particular man of God, and I said, I don't, I don't know. I don't know anything about him or them or that or nothing, but I said, this is what God has shown me. Thank you, sister. I forgot my hanky. Whoever's in charge of this stuff, y'all need to keep a stack of handkerchiefs up here. Seriously. What was I saying? I'm on that plane and God reminded me of that conversation I'd had with Bishop a few months ago about that man and that church. And I've been sitting around waiting on somebody to call and waiting on an opportunity and I'd sent word through a mutual acquaintance or two that I had a word for him. And then the Lord reminded me on that plane of another church on the West Coast that he had spoke to me for. And I said, but God, I, I sent word to him through another mutual friend and He knows that I've got a word for him and I'm just waiting on him. And the Lord said, I never gave you the right not to call them and tell them. I never told you you had to go preach for them. I gave you a word for them and I need you to open your mouth. They're wondering whether or not there's really any apostolic men of God left. Open your mouth and speak what I've spoken to you. I'm not talking about you tonight. I'm talking about me. So I'm going to call both of them. I'm tired of waiting on the right opportunity. I never saw one place in the Old Testament where people called and invited them Old Testament prophets to come preach. Matter of fact, Jesus is about the only one that told them, hey, I've made an appointment for you, now go. Them New Testament apostles, they just wrote letters to the folks under their authority. I'll be there. Shortly. And y'all better have it right and tight when I get there. Because I've heard this much murmuring and complaining among you. I've heard this grumbling and groaning going on in the church. And we want to put it off on everybody else. Well, they've done this to me. Well, they've done this. Hey, why are we so mesmerized by what's going on in the political system? Are you kidding me? Get your face out of the news and back in the Bible and you'll find out this has to happen. We're trying to figure out how to vote particular parties into office. Oh, I want some conservatives in there. Vote according to the Word of God and the principles of the Word. Yes. But what is the loss? If the liberal establishment takes it all, All it really does is puts the church 
in a prime situation to stand out like we have never stood out before. Churches are getting divided based on what political party you're a part of. And every four years we go through a struggle in the church. I'm a Democrat. How in the name of God can you be a Democrat? But we say it on Facebook because we ain't got the guts to say it in person. You want to spew your fuss and argument about who's doing what, but you ain't praying about none of it. I don't know how we've descended into this pit. Because we marginalized our apostolic identity and became obsessed with a political identity. And we got conservatives in the church who can't even look at a liberal. You get quiet on me. My plane don't leave till a little afternoon tomorrow. Well, I'm a Republican. And I'm a Democrat. Well, God bless you. I'm an independent. Fine. I'm a tea partier. Whoop to do. But the book says something about there being no Greeks and And the stuff we want to say is dividing us isn't what's dividing us. Oh, I love it when y'all get quiet because I'll just drop that plow six inches deeper and keep going. Somebody better amen something or we're going to be here for a while. Brother Shelton, how are you going to vote? As the Lord leads? And if he tells me not to vote, I ain't going to vote. But he said perilous times shall come. Heresies must come. Why? Maybe, just maybe, they're the catalyst that we're waiting on that's going to thrust the church back into her apostolic identity and finally draw a line in the sand and say, I am the church. It don't matter if I'm a Democrat and you're a Republican. It don't matter. We're children of the Most High God. And it's time we quit worrying about whether we're acting Republican or Democrat. Somebody needs to hear God, God is rebuking somebody. You're saying that because you're on Facebook. I ain't on nothing. I deleted my profile. I was afraid of Jesus coming while I was looking at the mess. I'm going to go ahead and say something too while I'm at it. I ain't the pastor around here, but they call me so I can say it. 
We'd have a whole lot more happening in the kingdom if the inhabitants of the kingdom would get off the internet. And just because you're not looking at pornography don't mean you're not polluting your spirit with the prejudice and the bias of the world. I did. I got off that mess. I look at pictures my wife puts on there occasionally. But I'd get to reading what we apostolics were posting on Facebook and all that other. I asked the Lord to let the internet crash at least seven days before he came. Because if he didn't, ain't there one of us got a shot at it. Gonna be on vacation and put pictures up on. Stupid. All you got to do is look at summertime postings on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and you remember why we preach about holiness. And if some of the people of God would look at the junk they're putting on there, they'd cover it up. But we have marginalized ourselves in our identity in the kingdom. We can blame everybody else for it if we want to, but if I don't have a prayer life, it ain't your fault. If I don't have a walk with God, it's not your fault. It's mine. I am not willing to sit idly by and let the devil wreak havoc on us any longer. And while I can't, I cannot determine what you're going to do. No more than you can determine what I'm going to do. Preachers can only preach the gospel. The Lord asked me that one night not long ago, and I don't remember if I said this the last time I was here or not, but the Lord said to me, he said, what did I do after I troubled the water? I said, Lord, I don't know. He said, well, look. I opened the word and I got to looking. I said, nothing. I don't guess. He said, that's right. Nothing. I sent an angel to trouble the water. That was my job. The rest of it's up to you. He said, I no longer send an angel from heaven to the church. But my men and women of God are the angels that I use now to speak a word and trouble the spiritual waters. And then he said, all this 30-minute altar call stuff you do. Did they do one of them at the pool that day? No, sir. He says, right. I troubled the waters. They knew I was going to trouble the waters at some point, And they had a responsibility to be ready to get in it when the waters got troubled. And then he asked his final question. He said, how many did I heal? One. The one that got in the waters when it was troubled. We have marginalized the power of God in the church by begging people who don't want to make a move to make a move. We have developed these long, eloquent altar calls to try to get more people to the altar to validate the nonsense we're spewing out over the pulpit. And that is on us.
We're going to get up here and preach about Mary had a little lamb and his fleece was white as snow. And then we come in the next service and we're going to be, and the Lord would have us to know that on today we are going to study an exegetical expose and we will sermonize. And because the saints are sitting there wanting to laugh out loud at us, and nobody feels compelled to come to an altar, then we have to come up with ways to trick people into coming to pray. About 17 years ago, the Lord told me, don't you ever do that again. I said, all right, what am I supposed to do when you're done? He said, I'll give you a number, and you tell them that number. And they've got that many seconds to get up and head to that altar. And if they're not moving by the time that time is up, I have nothing for them. We beg people to come to the altar. I'm going to say something. The bishop may just rain down judgment on me for this one. I don't know. But we beg so many carnal people to come to the altar that the ones that are truly spiritual and hungry get lost in the crowd. And we're praying for people that God can't do anything for because they don't want anything from Him. they just up here to get us to shut up and let them go to the house. But if we'd quit worrying about the numbers of people coming to the altar and just say, hey, all of you that are hungry and want what we just talked about, get down here right now and God's going to do it. And then lay hands on them and command it to happen. You'd be shocked. Is this all right? Tired of being marginalized. But I was highly shocked when I realized I was doing it to myself. (laughs) He did not many great works in their midst because of their unbelief. And we go into churches traveling around. We go into these churches. And I... I'll pick up on the spiritual environment and the condition of the church. And you automatically know pretty much, you've traveled, you know what I'm talking about, you've been around. You know pretty much what level they're at and what they can receive. And then somebody told us, don't try to give them anything more than what you feel like they can receive. Well, what if what God told me to give them is more than what I feel like they can receive? What if the corporate body is kind of numb, yet there's three hungry people in the building? And one of them's blind. But I hold back on the level of faith that I preach because 287 people don't want it. Yet there are three in the building that do want it. And what they need to have a revival in that church is a manifestation and demonstration of the Holy Ghost. We go back and we don't think about stuff Paul said. I come not to you with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in power and demonstration of the Holy Ghost. But if you let some little preacher walk up in the pulpit today and say, I'm going to preach for three minutes and then I'm going to demonstrate for however long it takes. Who do you think you are? And that pressure has marginalized us. 
And I've let it do it to me. I'll admit it. I'm embarrassed to have to admit it, but I do. Mr. President, no man thinks more highly than I do of the patriotism as well as abilities of the very worthy gentlemen who have just addressed the house. But different men often see the same subject in different lights, and therefore I hope it will not be thought disrespectful to those gentlemen if entertaining as I do opinions of a character very opposite to theirs. I shall speak forth my sentiments freely and without reserve. This is no time for ceremony. The question before this house is one of awful moment to this country. For my own part, I consider it as nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery. And in proportion to the magnitude of the subject ought to be the freedom of the debate. It is only in this way that we can hope to arrive at the truth and fulfill that great responsibility which we hold to God and to our country. Should I keep back my opinions at such a time through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason towards my country and an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven which I revere above all things and earthly kings. Anybody know who said that? Let me keep reading. Let us not, I beseech you, sir, deceive ourselves. We have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned. We have remonstrated. We have supplicated. We have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted. Our remonstrations have produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded. And we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. In vain, after these things, may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest should be obtained, we must fight. Anybody know yet who wrote that? Patrick Henry. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged in which our object of our contest shall be obtained, we must fight. I repeat it, sir. We must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all That is left to us. Tell us sir. They tell us sir that we are weak. Unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be any stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed. And when a British guard shall be stationed in every house. Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Are we going to get stronger by doing nothing? Sir Edmund Burke penned the words, the only thing necessary 
for the triumph of evil is for good men everywhere to do nothing. Three millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, he's saying what we've got together is enough. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Besides, sir, we have no election. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat, but in submission to slavery, our chains are forged. The clanking may be heard on the planks of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir. Let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear, a peace so sweet, so as to be purchased at the price of slavery? God forbid it. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The other day, I heard that portion of that again. The Lord prompted me to go and read that, and it began to stir something inside of me. And he said, even though the church may not want to admit it, even though the establishment of Christianity may not want to phrase it this way, the war has already begun. We're already locked in a battle. The enemy has already taken our families from us. He's already taken our health from us. He's already trying to pillage our churches. But what is to be gained by doing nothing? What is to be gained by sitting on the sidelines and trying to pacify everybody? What am I really going to achieve by coming to pulpit after pulpit and not voicing my opinion about God freely? To give glory to God, one must express to Him what they think about Him. How many times have I walked to a pulpit and preached and never once gave glory to God? Whether we like it or not, Antioch, we are already in a battle. And the next clashing of arms that you hear is going to be closer than the last one. And the one after that is going to be closer than that one is. And there will come a point where we have no other recourse but to enter into the battle. But why should we sit here and wait on the battle to come to us when the lines have already been drawn in the sand by the Word of God? If you're for me, be for me. If you're against me, then you're against me. But you're going to have to make a choice. There will never be a deciding thing that takes place in our life where God chooses for us. If you're waiting on God to choose which side of this battle you're going to be on, you've already chosen to be opposing to Him. 
He always gives us the choice. Stand with me. Come play something. He always gives us the choice. He'll tell you what the options are. He'll show you what the choices are. But when it's all said and done and the final decision has to be made, you and I have to make the decision. What side am I going to be on? Remember what he said to Miraz? Curse ye Miraz. Curse ye bitterly Miraz. For when the Lord had need of you, you would not come. Battle has already begun. This is not about politics. It's about scripture being fulfilled. At some point in time, the people leading this world are going to have to be of the most vile, base character that you and I have ever seen. For scripture to be fulfilled, men are going to have to wax worse and worse. There's no getting around that. Do I think that we should throw our hands up and just do nothing? No. If you think that's what I'm saying, you haven't heard anything I've said to you. We have got to fight back. The timing of God is going to be done. But the battle that you and I are involved with right now is trying to reach all who can be reached as the timing of God is being fulfilled. You're never going to pray enough to abolish wickedness in the world. It's going to be here. And it's not just going to be here. It's going to get worse every day and every week and every month and every year. And with every election, even the conservatives are going to become worse and worse. And we've got to quit living for God based on the economy. Based on the political environment. Based on somebody's agenda or somebody else's agenda. Or somebody else's hatred and bitterness. None of that should dictate to us our apostolic identity. We are the people of God. It doesn't matter what the world is up to. You and I are the undefeatable people of God. We are a part of the church that is going to survive. We're a part of the church that is going to be victorious. We're a part of the church that is going to overcome. We're a part of the bride that's going to go with Him. That's who we are. And somehow or another, we have got to reach the place that we stop marginalizing our own selves. Somehow or another, we have got to get to the place that we're never going to let another church service pass us by. We're never going to let another altar service pass us by. Somehow, oh God, shake us. All of us need to have one of those moments in here tonight where our prayer and our personal constitution becomes more than ever before. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Whether it seems like it's making a difference
difference or not, I'm going to pray. Whether it seems like it's changing anything or not, I'm going to pray. I'm going to be a worshiper. I'm going to stay in the Word. Because I have a promise that one day this life will all be over. Come on, make that commitment one more time, fresh to God. Lord, I'm in it for the long haul. Yeah, that's it. Come on. If you're standing with your family, take them by the hand and make it a family commitment. As for me and my house, we're going to serve God. It don't matter what the world does. It don't matter what the person on the pew beside me does. I don't care if they offend me. I'm going to serve God. I don't care if they like me. I'm going to serve God. I don't care if they agree with me. I'm going to serve God.